They're musical royalty and have sold over 10 million albums. Their sound is unique and instantly recognisable. My guests today are Sky Edwards and Ross Godfrey, otherwise known as Morchima. The Eyes Have It podcast. New perspectives, personal stories and eyewear journeys. With your host, Jason Kirk. Hello and welcome to The Eyes Have It, where I get a chance to spend time with old friends and explore the stories behind their careers, their journeys, and of course, something I'm passionate about, their eyewear. I'm Jason Kirk, founder of Kirk & Kirk, and I can't wait to chat to today's guests, Sky and Ross. Hello. 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 Nice to see you guys. You guys, you don't just have one unique element in your music. This is incredible and very, very rare. Sky, your voice is instantly recognisable. And Ross, your composition and your musicianship is equally your fingerprint. It's it's incredible. How did you discover and how do you balance those two things? Um, it's best not to think about it, really. We just sort of get on with it. Um, I mean, Sky's voice is obviously part of her body and takes a lot of effort to train and work. But for me, I, the music just sounds like it does when I just sit down and jam. So um, I don't think we try to do what we do. It just We just sound like we do. I was saying this just the other day when we recorded our first demo, which was Trigger Hippie. I was so shy. So we, we were recording in uh, Ross's bedroom with the little mic and both Ross and Paul were sat in the room with me and I was so embarrassed. I sang so quietly. And then they're like, oh, we, can, we need to move. We need to lose a bit more of the music. We need to lose and make more space for her sound, for, my, for the sound of my voice. But it's, I think, I guess that sort of mellow singing came from being shy. And Trigger Hippie was 95? Yes, came out in 1995, yeah. And that's when we met, and I, you were so shy. Do you remember when we met first time? I remember it was at MTV in Camden, and you came into the green room with a, a duffel bag full of different glasses, and we all kind of sat down and had a look through. Uh, we were on um, Lisa Anson show. Yes, I remember, and I still have those glasses, little brown ones, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, that. I've still got the duffel bag. <laughs> and you, you guys were shy. And do you remember coming around to our house in Walthamstow? And it was at the very, yeah. very beginning of your career. And we did some photography. Yeah, I, I remember that a bit more vaguely than um, than the meeting you at MTV. Um, but I, I remember since, you know, from that point forward, always popping into the shop, you know, um, in Covent Garden and and you come into our shows and so I guess we've known each other for 27 years something like that 28 years and I wish I'd been at that party when you guys met that sounds like such a momentous moment like a rock and roll moment tell us about that that was uh the summer July 1994 and um my best friend got invited to a party she didn't know the guy very well. He was a courier and he used to deliver packages where she worked and he invited her to this house party. And so she said, you know, Sky, I don't know the guy very well, so can you get there at 11? This is the address because I don't want to be there by myself. So I'm like, okay, I got there at 11. She didn't arrive until midnight. There was nobody there except Ross and his friend Justin. And so I, um, I asked Ross, I think I asked you for some skins so I could all the joint and then we got chatting and um i got ross's number because i used to play drums um and i also took justin's number um and we started dating after that and then um justin told ross 
that I could sing. And I was like, why did you tell them I can't sing? Why did you tell them I could sing? Because they, they were in need of a, a singer. And so I went round to, to the flat in, um, in Dalston um, and took my guitar and played them some songs. And they're like, who do you sound like? So I don't sound like anybody. And that was it. We were very impressed with Sky's voice. And I think within about a month of that, um, Paul and I had a session at um, Rondor Music. I think we were doing a demo for them in their basement studio. And that's where we recorded Trigger Hippie and the rest is history. I'm going to um, send you a little something. See if this rings any bells. Wow. Oh. <laughs> you shot this. We shot these photographs when you came around to our house at the same time as Trigger Hippie was being released. Amazing. And neither wow. of you have changed. These photos show Ross and Sky and Paul, Ross's brother, yeah. uh, wearing, wearing our glasses. And this is 1995. Now, if you want to have a look at this picture, you can actually see it on the Kirk and Kirk website. So we're going to put it up. Um, with the podcast, but um, happy memories. We were so excited wow. when we found this. That is wow. crazy, isn't it? Brilliant. Yeah, we look like little babies. You do. <laughs> and what I remember about that time was your uh, rise to fame was absolutely meteoric and so, so quick. You played, if I recall, you played one gig and then the next one was, well, you tell you tell me what the next one was. The second gig was was enormous. So yeah, the first show we played was at the Jazz Cafe in Camden and it was pretty disastrous. Uh, it was lots of feedback all the way through and um, we'd never really tried to, to bring the Morchiva sound onto a stage before. So uh, there was a lot of um, teething problems. But then, you know, we got um, uh, some money to buy better equipment and things like that. And then the next show I think we did in London was at the Royal Albert Hall and it went a lot better. And then we were playing, you know, um, big stages at Glastonbury and festivals like that, the V Festival, and appearing on TV shows like TFI Friday and later with Jules. And Later with Jules Holland was our second was ever gig. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There you go then. Yeah. And, and that really helped, you know, get, get our music out to um, certainly the British public. And pretty soon after that, we went on tour around the world. And we managed to to convince, you know, people in foreign countries to listen to us as well. And so that was really good. To this day, we still tour a lot um, around the world. And you're touring at the moment? Yeah, we, we just got back from a little tour of festivals in Europe and we're away again next week. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, during the summer, it's mainly festivals, but we do have the odd normal show. Um, we're actually doing an exclusive show this weekend in London. So... How did it feel? What was that? What was the excitement like at the beginning when you when you started this and you realised what was happening? It must have been an amazing feeling. Well, for me, uh, it, um, it kind of you don't realise that it's happening because we were we were constantly touring. So we would do three months around Europe, and then we'd do three months around America, come home for a week, and then do another few months here and there. So it kind of so I didn't really realise how um you know how how big we were and you don't really, you know, take it on board until years later when people are like, Oh yeah, you was like, you know, the, the forefront of trip hop and you know, when you introduced us as as royalty and I had to sort of cover my mouth to sort of like stop giggling. It's like royalty, really? Us you know, I always felt like it was a massive attack and Porter's head and the loco, they were the cool ones and more Jeeva were the you know, the kind of, um, yeah, the sort of slightly cheesier bands, but it's not really until later then people say, no, you know, whenever I 
got a compilation, I'd make sure if Mochiba were on there, then I knew it was going to be cool, that kind of thing. You are, you are always so modest and so understated, both of you, and, that, and that's part of your charm and, and part of your charm as people because we've, we've had a long friendship, um, but as musicians as well. And you always seem to be so alive and happy and exuberant on that stage. What does that feel like playing in, in front of thousands of people? It's um, it's a cross between kind of like the most exciting, fun party you've ever been to and also the most terrifying, like, um, I don't know if you've ever got up to do a speech at a wedding or anything like that. It's kind of, kind of a, a mixture of those two things. And that's um, normally why we have a, you know, a, a shot of tequila before we go on to steady the nerves. It's when you can see people individually. When you walk out and there's like, you know, 10,000 people in a crowd. They're just a bit of a, a, a smudge, really. Whereas um, when you've got people, individuals looking straight at you, then it, it, it's a bit more nerve wracking. Even in a big crowd, like I still, I like to be able to see people and I like to be able to look people in the eye. And even like to the furthest person at the back, if they're waving their arms in a certain way, then I'll try and do the same so that they know that I'm singing to them. So it's just, it's really, really important to, to be able to have that eye-to-eye connection and there's been times when we've done shows when it's been complete darkness out there it's like I can't see anybody out there. I might may as well be singing to no one. You're sharing something very special something very personal with your audience every time it's your own creation do you feel exposed vulnerable when you do that? I think the most is when we do the acoustic number at the end in the in the encore um, and I like to sort of stand right to the edge of the stage. And I remember someone saying, like, when you come off a stage, imagine a big, heavy wooden door closing because you've kind of opened yourself up. It's like doing a strip tease. And then you've got to pick your kind of just back up and walk off the stage. Like, you know, so let's just imagine, you know, kind of, um, you know, putting on a big um, cloak afterwards. And then, then you can do your meet and greets afterwards. And you're not too open, left yourself too open. When do you find time to create? To write music, um, I find time to create when my kids are at school. <laughs> so basically, between the hours of like ten a.m. and two p.m., I get to write some music, and then uh, after they go to bed, I'll then listen to it and maybe eat a uh, marijuana gummy and see if it's any good or not. And you know, Sky and I sort of send stuff back and forth to each other when we're writing, but. Um, since the pandemic, we've tried to make a point of actually getting together in the same room and writing songs. And we've been collaborating with some other writers recently. And it's really nice because, you know, you, you get instant feedback from each other and you can use that to, you know, are we going down the right road or shall I do this or shall I do that? Um, the album that we, we released a couple of years ago, Blackest Blue, was almost entirely made during the lockdown. And, you know, my only in-studio feedback was from my cats. So I'd do a guitar solo and look around and, was that good enough? And they would just sit there staring at me, you know. So it, it's kind of, it's, it's a lot nicer, I think, when, when you work in person. And what we're trying to do is, is carve out time to dedicate, you know, because we have quite busy lives. And when we're not on the road, we've got, I mean, Sky's got four children. I've got two children. So, you know, there's always a lot to do. And, and trying to put time aside to write, you know, uh, a song on an acoustic guitar can sometimes be difficult. So it's, what, it's one of those things that you have to prioritise and, and put time aside for. And I know that when you tour, uh, Steve Gordon is your bassist and Jager plays the drums. Is, is Jager touring with you this time? 
He is, um, for the most part, I mean, he's also um, playing with the Green Tea Peng and Wulu music. So, um, you know, he kind of sort of dips in and out. He needs the money. So he's, he says, like, I'm going to be doing most of the shows with you because I really need the money. He's like, cheers, son. <clears throat> he's obviously got cooler things to do than play in, play with us. And uh, it always makes me laugh when we're doing a sound check. And he says, can I get more of my mum in the monitors? <laughs> but he, he used to tour with you when he was a tiny baby as well. He's still touring. That um, MTV um, show that we did with Lisa Arianson and you turned up with your, your, your duffel bag of glasses, um, Jager would have been there just probably, what, yeah. nine months old or something really, really little. So he's been on the road with us and took his first steps in the Stadtgarten in... Um, in Germany and it's a music venue um, and yeah all of my kids I mean so he's 27 now and then um, daughter's 25 she's got a daughter see how I say she's got a daughter <laughs> rather than a, a grandchild <laughs> um, and then our, our 15 year old son now is he's playing keys and um, you know so we're kind of training our family to um, to play in the band and then we can we don't have to pay them so much <laughs> <laughs> they get accommodation and food thrown in as well, don't they? Oh, they should be pleased. And, and Ross, what about you? Do, do you take your kids on tour? How old are your kids now? Um, I have two daughters. One is 10 and one is just about to turn eight. Um, and I have taken them on tour before. Um, it's quite easy when they're babies because they're small and you can just put them in the bunk on the bus and stuff like that and they sleep through anything. Um, now, uh, I'm hoping to bring them to a couple of festivals this summer. Um, where they can, you know, run around and have fun. Um, but they're, they're, yeah, they love coming on the side of the stage and watching us and sometimes getting up and dancing and things. It's it's always a pleasure to have them around for them to see that I actually do work for a living and I'm not just going on holiday every couple of weekends. The Eyes Have It podcast is brought to you by award-winning eyewear designers Kirk & Kirk. For more info, find us on Instagram at Kirk and Kirk or visit our website, kirkandkirk.com. So it's something that really interests me. So, so how much freedom, when you create a song, when you, when you write music and you write all the different parts for all the different, all the different instruments, how much freedom does Steve get, for example, to create his own bass lines? Or are you... Are you um, well, I don't really know what the right word is to use here, so I'm really de delicately... But, are you giving him the baseline or is Steve coming up with the baseline? It's a little bit of both, really. I generally sort of have a basic idea of, you know, these notes sound nice. Um, and obviously, if the, if, the, if the beat has a certain feel to it, you've got to follow that. But also, there's always leeway for people to express themselves, you know. And basically, if he can come up with a better idea than me, then he's welcome to, to try it out. But... Um, it's, it's, you know, we've been doing it so long that we don't even really think about that kind of thing anymore. We just kind of get on with it. You know, we play a part. That sounds good. Move on, do something else. And it's only until later uh, that we, we kind of look back on it and we realize that we've created either something magic or something that needs to go in the bin. But it's it, the creative process. I think if you try and overanalyze it when you're in the middle of it, it kind of stops the flow. And you can't see the wood for the trees. And it's, it's, it's more important to just kind of flow down, flow through the, the, you know, on the journey with the music and you follow the music. Um, and hopefully that leads to a good place. And what we've found in general as a rule is that if we really like the music we've made, 
then most of our fans will like it too. So you're, you're writing, do you start by writing for yourselves or does the music take you? You've, you've got to like the music that you're making, otherwise it, it kind of doesn't feel right. Um, because we're not trying to manufacture something to fit into a, you know, a radio program as schedule. We're, we're just making music about how we feel. And it's a very emotional um, expression. And I, I think that if you're not true to yourself, then um, it, it, it feels false. And so it's, it's more a case of, you know, you sort of feel deep down where the music comes from and you let it out and you just hope that um, it's acceptable uh, to, to other people. Because Black as Blue really told a story, didn't it? It was about a time and emotions. Certainly, yeah, there's yeah, there's a couple on there that it's like, oh, how do I feel about singing this one on stage? Not not so much that I'm exposing myself, but because it's it it cuts so deep. Um, and like again, like on sort of on Blaze Away, we had a, a song called Sweet LA, and I would just be in tears at the end of it. It's like we're going to have to lose this one from the set. Yeah. Like, Sorry. And then a few years later, like so when we did our tour um in America and of course we're in LA, it's like we've got to do sweet LA and and I sang it all the way through and then turned around to Jager and just went, Yeah, did it, you know. So um yeah, there's there's a few moments like that, but you know, that's that's the beauty of songwriting and lyrics and you can you know, it's kind of a bit of um catharsism, is that the right yeah, word? It's a cathartic process. I, I feel like Blackest Blue was, and um, because it was made during the pandemic and the lockdown, I found that we needed to do it, otherwise we'd go mad. You know, it, it was that and homeschooling. So it was the, our only way of expressing ourselves. For me, the music expressed a way through a very dark time and, um, and we got through it. And I, I believe that nobody came through the, the pandemic unscathed, but you know, if you survived it, then somehow you are stronger, you know. Over the years, you've written with different people. You've collaborated with different people. I, Paul, was, Paul was involved in writing at the beginning of Morchiba. And then that's really evolved. How does it feel writing with different people? I love it. Um, so we just did it just these last couple of days. So we had a festival in Ireland, uh, Beyond the Pale. Um, and then we're like, we're in Dublin and we've just been working with this young chap um, called Alex O'Keefe. And so we got in the studio and it's just great. Like what Ross was saying earlier, to have that instant feedback, um, it just makes you feel like you're, yeah, you're doing the right thing when they're like, oh man, that's sick, sick. <laughs> the young people <laughs> say now. It's, yeah, it's a good feeling. It's really good. I remember, I remember visiting you guys at the studio back in the 90s when you were working with David Byrne. Yes, yeah, that was a while ago. Um, he he was a very special guy to work with, um, very inspirational, and you know, incredibly unique both as a person and a, and a musician and um, and his voice. And so that was uh, very educational. I think um, all three of us were very um, enthralled by by the way that he made music, and we'd only made one album at that time, so. For us, it, it helped us kind of see the potential and he had a certain kind of uh, playfulness in the way that he made music and and I've, I've always kept that with me. Like um, I, I heard a, I think it was a quote from John Cleese the other day talking about being creative. He said, if you're, if you're not being silly, then you're never going to have good ideas because uh, you shouldn't take yourself too seriously. Uh, you never have a good idea when you're when you're looking for it. You only have good ideas when you kind of 
stumble across them. Everything is kind of a happy accident. And then you can pretend afterwards that you meant to do it. And Sky, there's a, there's a track that you did um, when you weren't working with Ross that you did with Gary Clark. I'm a big fan of, uh, of Gary's. A track called Love Show, which I absolutely love that song. Thank you. Yeah, so that was my first solo album called Mind How You Go. Um, so I went out to LA and was working with Pat Leonard. And then it's the usual thing. You come back and you present the album to the label and they're like, we don't hear a single. We don't hear a single. So, um, yeah, it was sort of recommended to go and work with a few different writers. And, um, you know, Gary Clark was was the only one that I was like, oh, I'll, I'll you know, Steve's up. You should work with him. He's Scottish. He's going to be cool. Um, and, yeah, that was the um, first song that we wrote together. We've written a few together since then. But, you know, that was the start of the songwriting um, and a really lovely friendship as well. We really ought to talk a little bit about eyewear. And I, over the years, um, Ross, we've talked about glasses because you have the challenge of being able to play on stage in your glasses. And I, I remember you telling me on, on numerous occasions that that's been quite difficult for you. Yes. Um, it depends how, what the, you know, if you're in a really hot, sweaty club, um, you know, you just get sweaty nose. So your glasses are kind of sliding down your nose and you're pushing them back up. So you sort of feel like, I'm I'm half like Jimi Hendrix rock star, half school teacher, uh, constantly pushing my glasses back up at the bridge. Um, but you know, uh, it dep- if it's a big stage, I need to see the drummer. Um, you know, otherwise he's it just kind of looks like a thumb with hair. And uh, so wearing glasses is great. And and then again, if you're on an outdoor stage um, and it's sunny, uh, especially if the sun is actually coming directly onto the stage. It's lovely to have transition lenses so you can see what you're doing and it's like you're wearing sunglasses so you look cool. And Sky, so you wear glasses some of the time and that might be changing? Yeah, well, um, I'm, I'm always squinting. I'm constantly squinting. So I need to, um, first I want to go back and get my eyes tested, but I, I know that I need to wear glasses all of the time. So I'm always like, where are my glasses? Where are my glasses? I have very focals, um, so um, yeah, I can see sort of out of them long distance, and then also I need them for reading. Um, and then when it comes to performing, like what Ross was saying, as far as yeah, the festivals, and we we like to do the sunset set where where it's the sun's just about coming down, and then it turns into darkness. So I can start off with some sunglasses, and then I'll take them off, and then because I think it's also important for people to be able to see my eyes. That's true. And I know that you make your own clothing, don't you? You make some amazing clothing. You studied fashion? Yeah, I did. Um, I went to the London College of Fashion, but I didn't really sort of start making clothes for stage until probably, yeah, I mean, it's kind of gotten better in these last, sort of, I'd say, 10 years. Um, and I've made a really cool outfit for, for our gig in Ireland, and it goes perfectly with these emerald green Kirk and Kirk's, and I got mirrored lenses as well. So there's some really cool pictures that I'm going to send you. There's something else, something else I wanted to ask you as well. Tom O'Connor, I'll name that tune. You remember Tom O'Connor? Name that tune. There are so many more Chiba tracks that you can name on the first note. It is, is that something that you work on? Is that a deliberate approach? Uh, I don't think so, but, you know, <laughs> it's always good to have a strong melody. Um, I think, I mean, the sky's 
grew up listening to a lot of the sort of classic kind of um, easy listening singers like Frank Sinatra and uh, country singers like Patsy Cline. And I think what they always have in common is a very strong and particular melody. And so I guess that's rubbed off on us in some way. I mean, it's even, for me, it's even more than the melody. When I was going through your discography before this and I was like, I was thinking like, all these, all these tracks that I love that I hear all the time. And I just thought that first note, just the, just the, not even, not even the first sung note, the first note, you've, you've created an incredible signature. Um, when I was younger, I liked the intros and outros of songs. I didn't really like the middle. I just used to listen to the first kind of like 10 seconds or so and then skip to the end. And I always found those the most interesting bits of um, people's songs. So I guess that has had an influence on how um, we create music. And, you know, the early Morchiva songs were uh, produced by my brother Paul and I, and we always wanted to have kind of distinctive sounds, whether that was finding like weird samples from old records or, um, you know, trying to ham-fistedly learn weird instruments like sitars and things like that. Um, I think trying to find a distinctive sound has always been quite important. So that leads me to wonder, could the Morchiba of the 1990s survive today in the world of Spotify and short attention spans? Well, there's, there, there was a survey done recently of how long intros are these days. And the average intro is actually about a second long now. And most, most songs go straight into the chorus. So they don't really give you time to enjoy the atmosphere. It's just hitting you with a hook straight away. So in that sense, I don't think that people would uh, have the patience for a more cheaper song um, if, we'd, if we'd have just started now. Um, but obviously, there's some old fogies like us that still like to sit at home, smoke a flip and put on an album and listen to the whole thing and relax. And I guess they're our target audience. Thank you for bringing so much pleasure to so many people over such a period of time. And you do it with such grace. Thank you so much for giving your time today. Sky Edwards, Roscoe Free of More Chiba. It's brilliant, brilliant to see you. Thank you for coming along. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for asking us to do this. It's fantastic. I really hope you've enjoyed this. You can follow us on social media at Kirk and Kirk. Get in touch via our website at kirkandkirk.com or drop us an email at info at kirkandkirk.com. And don't forget to follow this podcast too so you'll get notified of all future episodes. Thanks again to Sky and Ross. For now, from me, Jason Kirk, and the Eyes Have It podcast, it's goodbye. Goodbye.